Erev Tov, everyone. Good evening. So happy to see familiar faces, even more familiar names. I know hundreds, over 440 have watched last week's session on Facebook Live. We're going to do what we did last week. Those of you who went to timemphis.org on Zoom, I'll be staying with you afterwards at eight o'clock when the presentation ends, and we'll have our dialogue then. Uh, this is the second in a three-part series on history and hatred, Judaism's response in three distinct er eras of, of history. Last week, we spoke about the rise of the early church and Christian uh, Jew hatred uh, up to about Constantine's sword. Uh, Constantine, of course, around 313, um, the Council of Nicaea, 325. I'm so excited about next week before I get to this week uh, because I'm going to be sharing with you uh, the fate of European Jewry in Germany, 1933 to 1939, with primary, primary material that's never been shared before, um, thanks to scholars at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. Uh, it will be published in an upcoming journal, but uh, um, we're gonna look at the modern period when it comes to anti-Semitism next week. So what are we um, gonna be discussing tonight? What am I gonna present to you tonight? We're going to be looking at the Middle Ages. We're going to be looking specifically at the year 711, easy date to remember, which was when a group of North African Muslims captured uh, the Iberian Peninsula, what we now know as modern day Spain and Portugal. Um, it's known as Al-Andalus. The territory became a prosperous cultural economic center where education, the arts, and sciences flourished. Um, many of you know of the golden age of Spain. Several of you I know have been to Spain. We're gonna be taking a deep dive into history and hatred um, in Spain, um, but we don't even have to go there first. Uh, we left Israel last week the anti-Jewish ideology of Pope Innocent III, um, who ruled between 1198 and 1216, is important because he's the one, the Pope, who set out the doctrine that Jews have a right to survive, but only as perpetual slaves for killing Jesus. He convened uh, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, which forbade Jews and Christians from working together. And you may know some of you that the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 also required Jews to wear special badges to distinguish Jews from Christians. Um, also in the 13th century, there were two new preaching orders as part of the campaign to root out heresy in the church. This was when the Dominicans and the Franciscan orders 
were established in the, in the 13th century. And the Dominicans were especially active against the Jews. We're going to see that. Um, in 1240, uh, they participated in what we now know and call the disputations with Jews in Paris. It was ordered by the King of France and supported by the Pope. And that disputation resulted in the burning of the Talmud because it was considered the main cause of the Jews' refusal to accept Christianity. And soon afterward, Dominican friars put up Pablo Cristiani, a former Jew, that's a theme we're going to see tonight, against Nachmanides in Barcelona to prove the opposite, to prove that rabbinic lore like the Talmud actually supported the Christian conception of the Messiah. So as we're going to see in Spain in the 14th and 15th centuries, several converts and their children would become important bishops and church officials who, in order to emphasize their sincerity of their Christian faith, were among the most outspoken enemies of Judaism and the Jewish people. Uh, now, regarding the disputation Nachmanides defended in 1263 in Barcelona, they centered on a few questions and it was a setup to embarrass the Jews. The questions were, had the Messiah already come? Was the Messiah flesh and blood? What was the true faith? Now, we do have some historical record of that disputation. King James, actually, in the first, he said that Nachmanides won the debate. He gave him 300 coins and said, quote, I have never heard a wrong position so well defended. King James I gave Nachmanides free speech to say things that were heretical. Um, Dominicans accused him of blasphemy and they wanted to condemn him to death. The king protected him from death but had to expel him from Catalan um, for two years and it led to permanent exile. Unlike Yehuda Halevi, that romantic Spanish poet we're going to meet tonight, he longed for Spain, um, uh, he longed um, for Spain from um, Israel. Um, that was Nachmanides. Yehuda Halevi said, my heart is in the East. From Spain, he longed for Israel. Nachmanides ended up in Israel and he longed for Spain. But back to the 12th century, expulsions and massacres followed in Europe. Um, the Jews of France, in case you didn't know, were expelled in 1182. In 1290, all Jews in England were ordered to leave. Um, last week, we talked about the blood libel, desecration of the host. There are actually trials of Jews um, that were hearkening back to the early church in Paris and, and Troy. Situation in Germany, a little more complex, um, uh, but 140 Jewish communities were wiped out. Um, the butchery of Jews was unprecedented in its geographic um, extent from southern Spain 
1348 to Switzerland, Western Germany, flared up in Belgium and Northern Germany until 1349. The 13th and 14th centuries before we get to Spain itself were a period when hatred and violence toward Jews were on the rise. Relative to the golden age of Spain under Islam, a hundred um, hundreds of years earlier. Basically, if you want a good thumb benchmark date, uh, 711 to about 1000 uh, was generally okay. And it went uh, relatively downhill after that. And we're gonna get to the Inquisition. But 1391 was the turning point um, in the history of Spanish Jewry for two reasons. Um, First of all, I, I should say that, that Jew haters were encouraged um, by the church and mobs slaughtered Jewish communities in one city after another throughout um, Castile and Aragon. Um, so what are the, the two reasons that 1391 was a, a turning point in history um, for Jew hatred? First, Tens of thousands of Jews, we'll get to the numbers, especially among the upper classes, converted to Christianity to save their lives and their possessions. Second reason is Spanish rulers for the first time introduced legislation, specifically the Castilian laws of 1412, which isolated Jews socially and economically from Christians. And this new policy was underlined by another very famous public dis disputation that we must talk about. Uh, everyone knows about Barcelona and Nachmanides in 1263, but after these riots in 1391, in the town of Tortosa in Spain, in 1413 and 1414, Jewish leaders were forced to debate Jesus as the Messiah. And the prosecution was always led by a converted Jew and the proceedings were given this one, uh, the blessing of one of the leading candidates to become the next Pope, believe it or not. Talk about the cards being stacked. Um, the many representatives of Judaism who were compelled by official command to come to Tortosa and to stay there during the disputation they defended themselves nobly and with acumen. And in the difficult circumstances following the massacres in Spain, remember I told you 1391, they acquitted themselves by all uh, records um, with considerable courage against the attacks of apostates um, uh, who just assailed them. Um, they're actually, I don't want to lose you, um, especially in the evening, but if you look up Joseph Albo, the Sefer Ikarim, a lot of traditional observant Jews, when they'll quote a lot of these scholars, don't necessarily know the historical context in which they're making their commentaries um, about Bible or about Talmud. Um, Joseph Albo actually summed up talking points to deal with these disputations. 
Um, in 15th century Spain, when the Jews were subjected to the pressure of constant persecution and missionary persuasion, you had these polemical exchanges. Um, if you want to see the most influential and penetrating uh, Christian side, Vincent Ferrer, um, th this was a intentional polemical attack on Jews and Judaism. Um, I, I don't want, I, I have in my notes, the archbishops, the names, um, but they sealed defeat, uh, the fate of Spanish Jewry. Um, now, how did Jews respond? I, we were powerless. Uh, there is, though, leave it to Jews. What's the one thing you can't take away? The mind, right? Jewish humor. Um, there actually was a book called Klimat HaGoyim, uh, Confusion of the Gentiles, in which... Uh, the author makes a systematic attempt to show that that early Christianity um, was so mistaken and led by a naive persons. Um, and it, thank God, didn't get into Christian hands because it ridiculed the arguments made against Jews. Another wave of conversion to Christianity results from the pressure applied during this Tortosa dispute, disputation. So when we look at this period of 25 years, 1391 to 1415, after that subsided, there was a large population of former Jews in Spain who were called new Christians or conversos. And they were perhaps, scholars debate this, approximately equal in number to Jews who refused to convert. So keep that in mind. It was the presence of these two groups, new Christians, Jews who converted to Christianity, the conversos, and Jews who would shape the course of Jewish history in Spain for the rest of the 15th century. Now, these new Christians found initially their situation was much improved by being baptized. Um, they could participate in society, uh, new opportunities opened up for them in city government, state administration, even the church. Um, again, several, several of these conversos and children of conversos became important bishops, church officials, and they showed their zeal for their new faith by excoriating Jews. The Spanish nobility, even the royal family of Aragon, they sought to marry their offspring to children of these wealthy new Christians, conversos. And while they were seemingly being absorbed into Spanish society, those who remained Jewish um, attempted to reconstruct their communities and educational institutions. Um, there's a, a Spanish term of Arabian origin, the Aljamas, A-L-J-A-M-A-S, um, that referred to the self-governing communities of Jews, more, Moors too, uh, living under Spanish rule. And while Toledo 
we call it Toledo, Ohio, Toledo, where Barcelona um, had Jewish life completely wiped out. It's very interesting to see that new Jewish settlements among the Jews who stayed Jews were formed. Next week, we're going to look at what happened in Germany. You know, we, we talk about the Shoah. It wasn't overnight. I mean, Hitler took them 13 years, 12 years to implement the final solution. So there was a period we're going to see the diary of Dr. Jacob Rader Marcus, who went to Berlin in 1936 after the Olympics with 39 other scholars. Um, he represented an anti-lacrimose view of history. He remained optimistic, as we see, you know, prognostications about uh, a, a hopeful future um, were doomed, not only in Germany, but, but even in Spain. So the first anti-conversos riot was in Toledo in 1449. So if you're following me, about half the Jews in Spain stayed Jewish. The other half converted. Things were going well for them. The Christians, the nobility, they wanted to marry the children of these new conversos. But they were very conspicuous um, in high positions. And popular hatred was stoked against them. And this continued from Toledo in 1449 to an especially violent outburst in Cordova. That's right, we're touching Cordova, Tennessee. In Cordova, Spain in 1473, attacks on these new Christians was rationalized by the accusation that they were really Jews in disguise and they practiced Jewish ceremonies secretly. You know the term Muranos, swine, it was applied to the conversos by their enemies. And this is when that term enters Jewish history for the first time. Now, eventually this term Murano loses its loathing. It becomes a badge of honor among Jews. In 1469, we have the big merger in Spain. Isabella, the Queen of Castile, marries Ferdinand, heir to the throne of Aragon. 10 years later, the two realms of Castile and Aragon are joined into one Spanish kingdom. In 1480, they establish the Inquisition to investigate the charges circulating against these new Christians. Now, an Inquisition was a religious court to root out heresy under the jurisdiction of the Pope, but it was controlled by the monarchy. After torture, they claimed the inquisitors that they discovered several thousand secret Jews among the new Christians. They confiscate their property. They condemn them to penances like hanging your family banner in the name of the church for decades as a badge of shame. Those who refused to repent were turned over to the secular authorities and they were burned at the stake as you know. The torture techniques were used. They, they extracted admission of a blood libel that, and this set the stage for what you know was a tragic date when the last Muslim territory on the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, Granada in the south, some of you I know have been to the Alhambra, um, they issued an edict, Ferdinand and Isabella 
making Judaism illegal in Spain. And supporters of this measure argued that the conversos had to be quarantined against Judaism. Now, some Jews converted in order to avoid having to leave. But an estimated 100 to 150,000 Jews departed Spain in the summer of 1492. We know the Columbus story. Perhaps the cartographer was Jewish. Jury's out. But they went to Portugal first. That lasted five years, and then they were forced to be baptized. Others went to North Africa, Italy, Turkey, America. Some ended up in Tzfat. That's why we have Lachadodi on Friday night. By 1500, the greatest medieval European centers of Judaism had either been destroyed, England, France, Spain, Portugal, or much diminished, like Germany. However, in Eastern Europe, in the Eastern Mediterranean, Judaism was about to find new strength, and that's where a lot of our roots are, right? As we get to the early modern period and even later periods, we don't even have these denominations of Judaism. The word Orthodox doesn't even appear until the year 1800. So this again is an overview of history. I wanna get back to Spain tonight though. Um, modern Spain is a very young democracy. It's only been 45 years, 46 years since Franco um, the dictator ended um, his rule. Um, if you go to the old Jewish quarter of Cordoba, um, which I did, uh, uh, leading uh, Jewish leaders from Nashville, um, there's a museum there that chronicles the history of the forgotten Jewish legacy in Spain. It's called the Casa Sfarad Museum. It's actually run by non-Jews who have become aware of their nation's legacy and are proud to reclaim it. Um, they're saying, this is a part of my country and my history. This is a part of me. And as I sat there listening to this articulate non-Jew talk about his shame, about what the church did to the Jews of Spain, and his pride in the great Jewish Spanish uh, thinkers, philosophers, theologians. Um, I thought about, and I mentioned this last week, how we have a marvelous organization named Facing History in Ourselves, and yet as a nation, how we haven't even come close to facing what was done to people of color in America, much less broadcast the gifts minority peoples and other faiths have brought to our nation. Half of the approximately 200,000 Jews in Spain left Spain in 1492, half stayed. Now the ones who capture our imagination on NPR, the crypto Jews, were probably fewer in number, despite our fascination with the stories of Catholic families keeping Jewish traditions alive, whether lighting candles, only on Fridays, washing meat in salt, kosher, fasting, can't see it, you could still do it. There were likely fewer crypto Jews than assumed because of human and natural tendencies. Most of the committed Jews left and many of those who stayed and happened to be Jewish didn't care about God they didn't care about religion. Think about American Jews. 
many American Jews are not as committed as those of you watching this talk. Um, by 1506, there were not any Jews left for the Inquisition to convict in Barcelona. So I don't want to burst our bubble. I'm not saying there aren't cases, but despite our fascination with a few unbelievable stories of Jewish remnants, there are barely any traces of Jews from 500 years ago in a modern Spain that's only 45 years old post-Franco. So in that sense, Ferdinand and Isabella's larger Catholic monarch plan to make Spain one religion succeeded. Achieving their goal in 1492 meant expelling Jews, then Muslims, then fighting any Protestant who wasn't Catholic. Their main weapon was secrecy. Nobody knew who was a part of the Inquisition or who told on you. Confession was already part of the church. People were put in secret jails to extract confessions, and then they were publicized as enemies of the state. Penances ranged from flogging to having to wear a uniform with a cross, your family name on it, a listing of your offense. When you died, the uniform was hung in the church, marking your family for 50 to 70 more years. So there's no way that most of us would ever continue Judaism if that was the consequence. It was less like Nazi Germany and more like today's North Korea. The Inquisition programmed the masses. It instilled constant fear in people. Whatever it took for Ferdinand and Isabella to get what they wanted in believing that they were chosen by Jesus to spread Catholicism as the only true religion. Before the modern period of world history ever began, you could argue Ferdinand and Isabella were the most modern of rulers in terms of efficiency, not morality. Most Spanish people today don't relate to this history because it's so distant. It's like asking an American how she feels about her relationship to Native American Indians in 1518. The last Spanish synagogue built before the 1950s was built in 1352. I went there. When you go there, there are questions like, what is a synagogue? What is a Jew? What is Judaism? So that is the success of the Inquisition in eradicating Jewish life and Jews for over 500 years. Let's talk about the Jewish response because the most famous and impactful Jewish figures lived after the golden age of Spain. That's what's remarkable. Maimonides did not live between 711 and 1000. He lived between 1135 and 1204. Nachmanides, remember the disputation in Barcelona? He lived between 1195 and 1270. Yehuda Halevi, that exquisite poet, physician, philosopher. He spent his life shuttling between Christian Toledo and Muslim Grenada, depending on the chaotic winds of change between 1075 and 1141. Moving back and forth between Christian and Muslim kingdoms. To give you a visual, 
Spain was Muslim, but then the Reconquista, the Christian armies, moved down from the north and eventually made it all the way down to Granada. Barcelona took a few days. That's why there isn't much to talk about when you see um, Barcelona. Um, we'll talk about that at the end of our hour. But Yehuda Halevi lived in Cordova and Grenada. He was born um, in Christian Toledo. His major work, the Kuzari, is about a kingdom in Central Asia that converted to Judaism, that shows Judaism as the true faith. Um, he dies in the land of Israel after making it there. And he's the one who said in the love, um, he wrote, my heart is in the east, but I am in the west. Because of his predicament, he yearned for Israel. Contrast that with Nachmanides 100 years later, who's expelled from Spain. And as I mentioned, he dies in Israel yearning for Spain. Maimonides, who everybody studies in traditional circles. He was born in Cordova in 1135. It said that from Moses to Moses, there's never been a Moses. From Moses to prophet to this Moses in Spain, he had a more rational view of faith. What happens? The Almohad dynasty conquers Cordova. So Maimonides became a wandering Jew. He had to leave. He left Spain for Morocco. He goes to Israel. He ends up in Egypt where he dies in 1204. But it was his openness to so many different disciplines while in Spain that's so remarkable. Now let's talk about these disputations between members of different faiths. Thank God we don't have that anymore. But up until early modern times, the three faiths, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, attempted to prove the superiority and absolute validity of one faith over the other, or in the case of Judaism, to defend the totality of one faith and its holy scriptures against criticism by believers in the other faiths. They usually start from and return to the common ground of the Hebrew Bible and certain religious concepts held by all three. Now, the most open and public disputation to take place in the Middle Ages was the Barcelona 1263 disputation between Pablo Cristiani and Nachmanides. But I want to share this with you. You've heard of Martin Buber, who was the representative German jury, the philosopher, the Zionist. As late as 1933, his Protestant Christian leader, um, apparently friend, Carl Ludwig Schmidt, said in a gathering of Jews in Berlin, the evangelical theologian who has to talk to you must talk to you as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ and endeavor to talk in a manner that will convince you of the message of the church. He must do this even if you would not have invited him to do so. The assertion of a mission to you may leave you with a somewhat bitter taste as if intending an attack. 
but it is so that you may live with us as our brethren in our German fatherland as throughout the, the world, end quote. In other words, it's not just 1263 in Barcelona. In 1933, in Europe, even this liberal German theologian, he was not a Nazi, a liberal German theologian found it necessary to declare at the outset of their dialogue the missionary character of Jewish-Christian disputation. And they sometimes started from a casual encounter sparked off by an actual problem. Sometimes they were formally conducted in public, and those are the ones everyone talks about. I mentioned um, Tortosa um, in 1413. Now, in preparing for tonight, I remembered that I often forgot to mention the disputations held in Muslim countries. Yes, it wasn't just Jews and Christians. But what's fascinating is the disputations in the countries of Islam were much more diversified than those taking place in Christian countries. In Muslim society, if you were not a Muslim, you could be one of the dhimmis, D-H-I-M-M-I. Those are protected minorities, Jews, Christians, um, other sects, other creeds, philosophical schools participated in these disputations. And what Muslims and Jews um, were in complete agreement on, um, monotheism, opposition to Christian concepts such as the incarnation, the Trinity decided by the Council of Nicaea in 425, icon worship. Uh, that is why, by the way, Maimonides said that Orthodox, well, they didn't, there was no such thing as Orthodoxy till the modern period, 1800s, but rabbis back in that day were allowed to enter a mosque. To this day, some Orthodox rabbis would enter a mosque, but never a church, because when Maimonides fled Christianity and found safety in Muslim lands, he never really interacted with Christians to know that the Trinitarians were still monotheists. Um, to him, it bordered on heresy. And some Orthodox rabbis to this day um, would adhere to that because Islam is pure monotheism. So what did they dispute Jews over? Well, a consistently held principle of Muslim argumentation back then was that Jews had falsified the original text of the Bible, um, adding or subtracting to it. And there was a Jewish apostate to Islam who was very famous, um, Samuel ben Moses al-Maghribi. He blamed it on Ezra the scribe, arguing that the Torah given to Moses, which had originally been in the possession of the Levites and known orally to the priests, had been destroyed. Remember when you were here for the high holidays? Um, when Ezra saw that the temple of the people was destroyed by fire, according to this apostate to Islam, Ezra um, concocted the Torah. He, it was burned. And the, the, the Torah that the Jews now possess, and the reason why Ezra is held in such high esteem, and why there's a light that appears over his tomb, is that he preserved a book that was not quite the original Torah. Um, so Muslim-Jewish disputation mainly centered around charges of 
um, attacks on the Jewish way of life. On, 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 uh, on their side, the Jews attacked Muhammad, who, as you know, originally was nice to the Jews, but when Jews would not convert to Islam, they called him a madman for the wars that he conducted against Jews. Um, it's complicated. Whenever you go to Israel, whenever you study the medieval period, there was a golden age of Spain. We're going to talk about the Umayyad dynasty, which was the, the, the golden age. But there were different dynasties. And depending on who was in power, life got better or worse for Jews. Something interesting um, is the chapters and verses that you know um, today as a given were not invented until 1263 in the Christian world and not until the early 15th century officially in the Hebrew Bible. Most scholars would agree that these were used as reference points in these disputations when Jews were put on trial. It says in the Bible, Jews read the Bible in Hebrew. And that's why when you look at an English Bible, sometimes the verses start in the middle of a sentence because they were used um, as strategic ways to prove a point against a Jew in a disputation and for a Jew to use it as a point of reference to provide a rebuttal. Um, the first time the word um, something like Spain appears in the Bible, if you want to look at the prophet Obadiah, it says in chapter 1, verse 20, the Gulat Yerushalayim Asher Bisfarad, um, the exiled Israelites, remember the destruction of the northern kingdom is Israel and Jerusalem and Judah in the south. It says that the Jerusalemites shall possess, um, shall go all the way to the community of Sfarad is the Hebrew word for Spain today. Um, we don't know exactly what was meant. Maybe it was Asia Minor. But the idea is that it was as far away as you could go from the land of Israel. Why do I bring the Bible into this? Because the roots of Jews in Spain go back 1600 years until 1492. Did you know that the trials went as late as 1818? The Royal edict of Jews being expelled from Spain did not end until 1834. In the 1860s, select Jews were invited back for their expertise. Um, Madrid invited Jews back to help them um, with their trains. Um, just an interesting fact, the uncle of Franz Kafka uh, was among them. Um, Modern Spain, I'm not going to spend time on, but I do want to go to Segovia. Um, and when we talk about the uh, regions of Spain and, and the population of its major cities, um, Spain was the most far up place you could go. 
Jews definitely were there by the time of the Roman Empire. In 1391, remember that date? 60% of Spanish Jewry was massacred. What were the four largest cities in Spain? Madrid, Barcelona, Valencia, and Seville. Seville, I want to spend a few minutes on. It was the capital of Andalusia, Al-Andalus. Um, and there is the quarter in Seville, known as the Jewish Quarter. With the famous story of Susanna of Seville. If you don't know this story, look it up. She fell in love with a Christian count. And the spot is marked by a tile on the wall bearing a picture of a skull. And it's a silent witness to the tragedy that happened to her. And this is, you know, when we tell the story of tragedy, we need to tell one by one, not these statistics alone of 100,000 Jews leaving or 60% being massacred. This story takes place in the year 1480, in the final years of the Jewish community of Seville. And by this time, as the newly emerging kingdom of Spain strengthened itself through enforced conformity to Catholicism, many Jews had already left or converted to Christianity. But you remember what I said, there was suspicion among some Christians that these new Christians, conversos, were not true converts. And that's what led to this inquisition we talked about. Well, there was Don Diego de Susana. He was one of those new Christians. He was in a high position. He was a target. He was a wealthy merchant. And he convened a secret meeting of some of these new Christians to discuss the possibility of having to defend themselves because they were being questioned as whether they were faithful or not to the church. These were not Moranos. These were conversos. His daughter, Susanna, was smitten by a Christian boyfriend, a young noble. And she feared because they were madly in love and were going to spend the rest of their lives together. She feared that he would be put in danger. So she told him about her father's meeting. And he reported them promptly to the authorities. And they brought her dad before the Inquisition. And they tortured him. And they tried him. And they executed him. And it led to a pogrom against uh, the remaining conversos in Seville. Stricken with remorse at the consequences of her actions, she trusted her fiance. Susanna, she never left her house. And when she died, she had her head hung upside down outside the house where it remained as late as the 18th century as a testament to her grief and the duplicity of Christians. When Ferdinand and Isabella says one country, one religion, um, that's what they meant. Now, Cordova, if we go back in time before we get to the tragedy of Susanna, it was the largest city in the world. Did you know that in the year 1000? Um, it was the center of this Umayya dynasty. They were liberal. Um, uh, to give you Chastai Ibn Shaprut, how did Jews live then? He was the physician of the caliph 
of Cordova. He became the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was a diplomat, a polyglot. He knew Latin, Arabic, Hebrew. So this was a time of tremendous Jewish creativity and literature and philosophy and, and letters and poetry and science. But after the Umayyad guy dies, the Almoravids uh, come in from Morocco, they were less tolerant. Jews have to convert or die. Um, let me give you an aside to give you some context, perspective. There were about six to 10 million people on the Iberian Peninsula um, during this era. That's Spain and Portugal. The guesstimates are that there were up to 200,000 Jews at the time of the expulsion. That's a pretty significant percentage when you think about it. Half left, half stayed. 100,000 convert to Catholicism, 100,000 who stayed. Um, and again, there is a debate over, over um, uh, whether they converted out of conviction or out of convenience. Um, if you ever go to Cordova, um, you need to, to go to uh, the cathedral in the middle because they preserved the mosque. It's like five city blocks, the most beautiful. You think you're going into a mosque. Then right in the middle of the mosque, it's like the Vatican. It's gold. It's the most, uh, it's a statement as if sticking a knife in the heart, literally placing a cross into a mosque or synagogue. And it's symbolic of what uh, the church did to Muslims and Jews in Spain. Um, was conversion a matter of acculturation or complete assimilation? I, I want to share with you, because I see my mom's here, and she's a nutritionist and was a food writer. Um, in that museum in Cordova, in the Jewish Quarter, they showed me these are non-Jews, that pork in Spanish dishes was inserted into old recipes to prove that you were a true Christian and no longer a Jew or Muslim. There's a direct correlation between the amount of pork in the province recipes and the number of Jews who once lived in those provinces. You had to change the way you ate. You had to change your family name. Conversion was a means to one country, one religion. It meant converting not only into a different faith, but into a completely different person. We talked about the crypto Jews everyone is fascinated with. Um, yes, there are stories. How do you um, adapt? You use chocolate instead of wine, corn tortillas instead of challah. Um, keeping alive traditions without realizing it. I mentioned about the lighting of candles, the washing of meat, um, very discreet expressions in Spain, but there are no traces of Jews left in modern Spain, as I said. This ended in the 1800s. It died in old death, but the Inquisition won. And 
being Spanish meant being Christian. Um, there was an innocent comment I have in my notes about a family's older babysitter who commented going through the Jewish Museum in Cordova, I didn't know you could be Spanish and Jewish at the same time. The vestige of the Inquisition is evident even in the modern Spanish expression and street language, talk Christian means talk Spanish. Anyone with a bloodline five generations with Jewish or Muslim blood was not allowed to carry a weapon or go to university. That's 150 years. So when you wanna create a uniform identity of one religion, making others hide or lose their identity is the only way to reach your ultimate mission. And we saw that, as you know, in Eastern Europe, where many of our relatives came from, um, when it came to making boys enlist in the army before bar mitzvah age, so that they would never know they were Jews. My point, friends, is that for 1,500 years, Spain was the most fertile Jewish place in the world. And the story of, of the Jews of Spain is not just a tragedy of the expulsion, but the legacy and the literature of Ibn Gabirol, Yehuda Halevi. Um, I'm, I'm gonna adhere to our time because I know some of you have to go at eight, except those on Zoom hopefully will have more of an exchange after. The best Jewish creativity emerged often in times of strife. And what's the proof? Most of the famous Jewish figures lived after the golden age was over. I have about 10 minutes I'm not gonna share with you on Toledo, which was the capital of the La Mancha region, about 100,000 people. It was the imperial city. Madrid became the capital in 1561, but beginning in 1085, um, the king took away the coexistence of Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Um, we've talked enough about the Inquisition, but I wanna just make one point. Zero Jews were killed by the Inquisition. Let me repeat that. Zero Jews were killed by the Inquisition. Once you were baptized, you were a Christian for life. The Inquisition was to root out the bad influence of new Christians on old Christians. Um, an interesting point to make as well, since most of us have been alive since 1975, when the Franco dictatorship ended. Franco defined Jews by religion, not racially. That's why Hitler never, we're gonna look at Hitler next week, he never praised Spain for its treatment of Jews, its mistreatment of Jews. Hitler even asked Franco in 1940 in a famous meeting to set up a concentration camp there. Spain was fascist, but Franco was clear on Jews as a religion, not a race. 
Um, in my remaining time, let me share with you something interesting. Um, before we leave 1492, after 1492, of course, uh, think, think about this, between 711 and 1492, the rest of Europe was in the dark ages while Spain flourished. Then after 1492, the rest of Europe left the darkness. We begin the Renaissance and Spain becomes a backward place. And all this because they decided to create a country with one religion. I want to spend our remaining few minutes talking about Catalan, uh, Barcelona, most frequent city to visit after Paris and New York. Um, modern Spain is a conglomeration of different kingdoms. And you've probably heard about the referendum to secede. Um, Franco banned the use of the language of Catalan from 1939 to 1975. Catalan represents 20% of the economy. It's wealthier in the north than Madrid in the south. Um, uh, the Spanish language is Castilian. Um, Spain forced those in the north um, to conform. Um, so there were referenda on a secession um, about, it's one of Spain's wealthiest regions, as I said. Uh, it accounts for 20% of the GDP. Um, what about Jews? Before the Black Plague of 1348, Jews were 15% of Barcelona's population. They paid taxes to the king, not the church. 1391, we're back to where our hour started. There was a riot on the Jewish quarter on St. Dominic's Day. And 1487, they killed the last remaining Jew in Barcelona. Remember the disputation of Nachmanides we started our hour with? That was 1263. We're 220 years later. There are four provinces of Catalonia. Girona is the most northern. A thousand Jews were executed there by the Inquisition. Fewer Jews are uh, crypto Jews. That's the theme of tonight then assumed because, as I said, committed Jews would leave. Most Jews didn't care about theology or being Jewish. By 1506, there were no Jews left to convict in all of Catalonia. Now, there is a debate. Yitzhak Baer argues that most of the converts were forced to convert and they kept Jewish traditions. This is a view that sees Jews as victims. He's a German-Israeli scholar. Guess who the main opponent um, of this view was? Bibi Netanyahu's father, Benzion Netanyahu, who is a scholar, a historian. He claims that most converted for their own benefit in order to survive and climb in society. I want to close by pointing out, um, I'm talking to you from TI Memphis in the South. No doubt my relationship with Christians is influenced by being in this philo-Semitic city where I'll be next month uh, with my Catholic brother at St. Michael's, where uh, my predecessor, uh, my predecessors, Rabbi Danziger, Rabbi Wax, Dr. Edelson, were all leaders 
in the Memphis Ministers Association. Um, where you live influences how you see things. And I just want to close with this example. Um, the most famous Catalonian in the north was Nachmanides. They had to bring him down to Barcelona for that disputation. Um, Nachmanides was more conservative in his opinions, uh, whether it be his approach to the text um, or sex. <laughs> Maimonides was much more um, whimsical. He, he saw miracles as allegory. He grew up in this fertile exchange between Christians, Muslims, and Jews in the South. That's where Maimonides grew up. Nachmanides grew up in Girona. So often when we study classic Jewish texts, it's important to understand even the Hall of Fame, Rashi, lived during the time around of the Crusades. Um, New French, Maimonides, Nachmanides, different parts of Spain, different periods of time. And the beauty of our faith is that we found a way to adapt and to thrive and to survive. The two possible ways of looking at history and hatred are a lacrimose view of the ever-dying Jew, or we could look at it as the ever-living Jew. The Torah study that we just had this past Saturday at TIU, and we're going to have this Saturday, will quote these Spanish products of this 711 to 1492 era. And we're all their legacies. Because where did the Jews go after that? Many are in our ancestry uh, on this session tonight. So I want to thank um, those of you who are watching Facebook. If you want to join our class live next week, just go to timememphis.org. Anyone and everyone is welcome. I want to thank Lynn Owen for being the most fabulous registrar of our adult learning university. We're going to be doing some in-person and um, virtual. Uh, Rabbi Dreyfus will be doing that towards the end of the month, experimenting with that. So uh, we want multi-access. If you're out of town, you can always join us this way. If you're in town, uh, look for in-person if you're vaccinated, masked, and of course, distance. But thank you for taking your night to uh, be with me. Uh, I hope you learned something new tonight. And I look forward to seeing you next week when I promise we'll get to the 20th century. Bye, Latov, everyone. Take care and... <laughs>